It was becoming clear that, despite having been going on for months, the flap was just ramping up. As the Opercal Prado team, including engineers, geologists, and botanists, set up recording equipment and began taking statements, they documented at least nine separate encounters on October 18th, one of the busiest nights so far. Of those, that of Claudio Mira Rodriguez da Paxio stands out. It was recorded directly from Claudio Mira by Sergeant Flavio, second-in-command of Opercal Prato, who would go on to produce more than 2,000 pages of reports for the Brazilian Air Force. Claudio Mira was asleep in a hammock in a room with her cousin and her children when she saw a narrow beam of light on her body, striking on the left side of her chest and sucking blood from it. The light went down the back of her right hand, which gave her the sensation of being pricked by needles. She tried to cry out for help, but could not make a sound and found it difficult to move. She was roused by her cousin, who screamed when she saw the light. Claudio Mira found that she could now speak and cried out, I am ruined. The animal sucked me. She felt a great heat afterwards in the spot where she was struck by the light, and in her right hand, along with a headache and pressure on her chest. It is from encounters like this that the Chupas take their name, though it must be stated that in only a handful of encounters is insanguination observed. Whether this represents the taking of a blood sample or merely bleeding associated with whatever the Chupas' purpose was cannot be known. With this encounter, documented by Sergeant Flavio, our exploration of the Calares Flap takes another unexpected turn. Contrary to most UFO sightings in the US and Europe, the Chupas seemed indifferent to being documented, and despite the presence of a team of military investigators, the pattern of sightings continued unhinged, seemingly indifferent to being captured in photograph or on film. That very indifference to the people on the ground combined with the increasing frequency and lethality of the encounters, was taking a toll on the collective psyche of the locals. This is well illustrated by Antonio Acasio de Oliveira, who, on the evening of October 19th, was in front of his house when he observed a reddish-yellow light moving above the trees in front of his house. As he observed the chupa, it quickly dimmed to a small point, then suddenly stopped moving, at which point it emitted three rays of blue light towards Scolares and then moved off. Antonio, for reasons that are unclear, drew his gun and fired two shots at the object, which, lucky for Antonio, did not respond and continued moving towards the town. 
This violent encounter, along with the arrival of the military, adds another layer to the mystery of the Kalares flap. Due to the efforts of Captain Holanda, as well as civilian UFO researchers such as A.J. Gavard and Danielle Robiso-Geese, and those who lived through the flap, such as Dr. Carvalho, we know much about the Apercal Prato investigation and the public's overall reaction to the phenomenon. However, despite tantalizing mentions in the available documentation, such as observed interception by aircraft or helicopters, we have little information about the wider military response to the Chupas. We do know that they were, at least occasionally, tracked on radar, but all air traffic control in Brazil is handled by the military, so unlike U.S. reports of UFOs, we have no direct testimony from air traffic controllers. Certainly, some high-ranking members of the Brazilian Air Force believe that whatever was behind the Chupas was making a systematic study of their radar tracking capabilities, but, as with so much more about the Chupas, we have no way to know for sure. As we continue to look at the flap in Calares, it is important to note that the sightings in the countryside did not cease, and that they were as much a fact of daily life as they were in Calares. It is in this environment that Beatrice Almada da Costa, who has already had three documented encounters with the Chupas, would have her fourth and final encounter the day after Antonio took his shots at one. Just like her previous encounter, she was walking on a rural road when she was struck by a reddish beam from an unseen Chupa, which caused the now familiar chill throughout her entire body, along with the shaking and loss of control. This would, mercifully, be her last encounter with the Chupas, though, like so many others, she could not know at this time. The day after Beatrice's last encounter, Dr. Carvalho would have her second and last direct encounter with the Chupa, though she would continue to treat the victims directly affected by them until the end of the flap. Just as with her first encounter, Dr. Carvalho observed a bright metallic object spinning over the beach and moving with the falling leaf in reverse motion that she had observed before. With so many people in and around Calares having encounters with the Chupas, word was spreading about them as friends, family, and neighbors told each other about their own sightings. However, not everyone had an encounter with the Chupa, or even believed that there was anything happening at all. One such skeptic was Antonio D'Souza, a 51-year-old retired policeman. On October 24th, just a couple days after Dr. Carvalho's final encounter, Antonio was going out into his backyard when he noticed that the sky was illuminated with an unnatural bluish light. Looking for the source, Antonio saw a very bright light or star, which as soon as he noticed it, moved to a different location in the sky. Unnerved by the chupa seeming to take notice of him, he turned to go back into his house. As Antonio did so, he was struck by a ray of light, which partially paralyzed him. He tried to call out to his wife, but the words became stuck in his throat. He was able to make it inside and out of the path of the beam of light. Under the safety of his own roof, he was slowly able to regain his strength. 
When Antonio was finally able to wake his wife, he told her, The chupa almost got me. As encounters such as this continued to occur, life in Calaris was beginning to break down. Many of those who could afford to leave the area did so, and those who could not were on edge. Panic was spreading, and there was an intense pressure on Captain Holanda and the rest of the Opera Cal Prado team to come up with an explanation for what was happening. Though the Opera Cal Prado team had been in Calaris for more than a week, and had been taking statements of sightings, it was not until the evening of October 26th that they would see a chupa for themselves. They observed one descending on a gradual trajectory, leaving a trail of light behind it. Though unremarkable among the thousands of recorded sightings, hundreds of photographs, and hours of video the team would collect, it did serve to prove, at least to the Opercal Prato team, that what they were investigating was not mass hysteria. With the team set up near Marajo Bay, more sightings would naturally come in from the fishermen and those working on or near the water, if for no other reason than just the proximity of the witness and the investigators. As our exploration moves over the water, we move deeper into the mystery and, for the first time, must confront the question of just where the chupas are coming from. We can see something of an answer to that question in the sighting of Orlando Fontanel Trinidad, a fisherman out of Marajo Bay just after midnight on November 1st. Orlando observed a reddish-yellow light moving fast across the water. At first he assumed it to be another boat, but when it approached a different boat, he could clearly see that it was not. As he was trying to figure out just what he was looking at, a second light appeared this one higher up, approximately 65 feet in the air. Orlando watched as the second light approached the first, and once they were together, the light seemed to merge before slowly moving out to sea. The light remained visible for several more hours, until shortly before dawn. What was seen by Orlando was potentially sighted that same night by Elias de Oliveira, another fisherman from a distance of just a thousand feet. He was casting his net when he saw a reddish-yellow chupa moving low and silent over the water. It approached a boat with a blue light on the mast, spinning around it in a falling leaf motion before coming down and before it disappeared. The boat with the blue light then turned out to sea and went away slowly, with the light on the boat remaining visible for several hours. That same night, Back on shore, the members of the Opera Cal Prado team had another memorable sighting. This time, Captain Holanda's superior officer, Lieutenant Colonel Camilo, head of military intelligence for the nearby base, Sergeant Flavio, and several other members of the team witnessed a bright reddish chupa, semicircular and emitting bright flashes of blue light at an approximate altitude of 4,000 feet. It maneuvered erratically from right to left throughout the sky, before dimming rapidly to a ruby-red color and disappearing from sight. Fifteen minutes later, a local resident, Antonio Acasio de Oliveira, observed a reddish-yellow light intermittently blinking blue, potentially the same light witnessed by the Opercal Prato team. As he watched it, 
The light momentarily disappeared as an Air Force helicopter approached. Antonio then observed the light reappear behind the helicopter and follow it for some time before disappearing in a fast climb. These sightings would seem to confirm persistent rumors that the Chupas came from and went back into the sea, which neatly explained why there were so few sightings of the Chupas during the day. However, all that answer does is push the mystery further out. If we want to get to the heart of the flap, we will have to look elsewhere. Looking back over all the documented encounters, it is impossible to ignore the Chupas are under some kind of intelligent control. However, aside from Manuel do Espirito Santo, on October 12th, descriptions of occupants of the objects are entirely absent from reporting of the flap to this point. That would change on the evening of November 2nd. That evening, Rio Guajara Olaria Keffer saw a circular chupa 10 feet wide by 7 feet tall with a reddish dome on top, moving below treetop level quite close to the ground. Rio had the impression that it was transparent, but he had a difficult time looking directly at it as it was too bright. As he was observing it, a porthole opened from the bottom and a humanoid figure floated from the chupa. Rio described the being as short but muscular, wearing a tight, dark, seamless uniform. As it moved towards him, it shined a reddish beam out of its hand directly at Rio, at which point he ran away. If the beam had any effect on him, Rio did not notice. As he ran, Rio turned and looked back, and saw the humanoid examining his fishing net before returning to the chupa, which took off and began chasing Rio extending what he described as a searchlight as it went. Rio ran a good distance and eventually lost sight of the chupa. He ran up to a group of friends who were sitting in their boat, and as he was relaying his harrowing encounter, what Rio believed to be the same chupa reappeared, though it was a different color, this time red on top, while blue-green on the bottom. Having heard Rio's description of what the object could do, the men all ran away. Rio glanced back and was able to see the humanoid emerge from the chupa and examine their boat. After a short period of time, the humanoid went back into the chupa and departed quickly afterward. It speaks to the unique nature of this UFO flap that this particular encounter, so out of place, would fit so well in the UFO culture of 1970s America and Europe. Just four years before this flap, the so-called Year of the Humanoids featured dozens of encounters just like this one. And yet, we cannot help but notice how out of place it feels here. As the flap has done to us so many times before, it now takes us in a new direction. For the encounter of Evaldo Viegas Pantoja, a commercial airline pilot living in Belem, we must take to the skies. While flying his private Cessna 206 in the skies above Calares in the late morning of November 23rd, Ivaldo observed what he referred to as an airship approximately two miles away. The airship was clear gray in color, like dull metal, and moving at just 60 miles per hour. Ivaldo was so frightened by his experience 
that he made an unscheduled landing at a nearby airport, and it was some time before he was able to steady his nerves and resume his flight. The same object was observed from the ground as well by Antonio Ferreira, a painter. He described the chupa as being clear gray and oval to cylindrical in shape. He further described the now familiar falling leaf motion of the chupa as it went through the sky. Beyond the unique perspective that Ivaldo provided from his Cessna, this was one of only a handful of encounters that took place during daylight, and one of the few where the witness did not describe the object as luminous. This, as much as any other aspect of the flap, raises some disquieting questions. If the chupas are not inherently luminous, what does it mean that they choose to be luminous at night? If they are inherently luminous, then just what did Ivaldo and Antonio witness? As with any journey of exploration, even if we want to stop, we cannot help but move forward. Just because we may want time to stop and consider what is happening, we often cannot. Events rarely cooperate. And so it would be for the Opera Cal Prato team when on November 25th, just two days after the aerial sighting, Father Alfredo DeLau, who had an encounter with a chupa back on October 13th, would have another with a similar object. He was driving his car when he observed a cone-shaped object moving slowly in the sky. It was only three feet by two feet in size and descended in a slow, waving motion. When he stopped his car to get a better look, Alfredo could see red, green, and yellow lights in a triangular pattern, which changed abruptly in luminosity as the object moved. As it departed, no one, not Father DeLau, not the Alpercal Prato team, no one could know that this was the tail end of the main part of the Calares flap. In the weeks afterwards, sightings decreased dramatically before spiking back up again after the first of the year, though at no point did the sightings ever truly stop. Throughout this time, Captain Holanda and the Opercal Prato team were diligently collecting written accounts, trying to find some explanation for what was occurring before their very eyes. And it cannot be overstated just how many times the Upper Cal Prato team witnessed something inexplicable. Despite their best efforts, an explanation for the Calares flap remained elusive. Yet, they could not leave, as they were hearing about or even recording sightings daily, even if they were occurring less frequently. Lieutenant Flavio had another sighting himself, along with members of the Upper Cal Prato team, on February 13th. Father DeLau had sightings on February 18th and again on April 18th. Lieutenant Flavio had two more sightings on June 20th and June 30th. Sightings would continue nearly daily throughout July before slowing down towards the end of the month. The chupas would continue to appear here and there and for the rest of July and through August before slowing even further in September and October. The last reported sightings of the Calares flap would be in November, and as it arrived with a bang, it would go out with one too. 
On November 6, Jose Rodriguez dos Santos, a commercial pilot, was flying northeast of Calares when he observed an object coming up alongside his plane at a distance of just about 325 feet. He observed it for several seconds, noting that it was oval-shaped and clear gray, tending towards clear blue and was shining blue and red on the bottom. Then it moved directly in front of his plane before ascending vertically at a high rate of speed. As it did, the plane passed through the bluish slipstream left behind by the object, which caused strong turbulence for the plane and an unintended loss of altitude. Fortunately, Jose was able to maintain control of the aircraft and avert disaster. Though no one knew it at the time, this would be the final encounter with the Chupa of the Calares flap, one of the longest, best documented, and most mysterious UFO flaps the world has ever seen. We've gathered a lot of information, heard more than 20 unique encounters, with hundreds more documented, from a variety of people, military and civilian, rich and poor, urban and rural, from all walks of life, and yet, just how much do we know about what was really going on? By the time the Calares flap ended, Dr. Carvalho had seen at least 35 patients with deep red skin lesions on the head or torso and other common symptoms. From her clinic near Marajo Bay, Dr. Carvalho compiled numerous case reports of those who had been injured or killed by an encounter with the Chupa. With her findings, she was able to compile a list of symptoms that was common from encounter to encounter, which she shared with ufologist Danielle Rabiso-Geese, which Jacques Vallée printed in his book, Confrontations. 1. A feeling of weakness, some could hardly walk. 2. Dizziness and headaches. 3. Local losses of sensitivity, numbness and trembling. 4. Pallid complexion. 5. Low arterial pressure. 6. Anemia with low hemoglobin levels. 7. Blackened skin where the light had hit, with several red purple circles, hot and painful, 1 to 1.25 inches in diameter. 8. Two puncture marks inside the red circles, resembling mosquito bites, hard to the touch. 9. Hair in the blackened area fell out and did not rejuvenate, as if follicles had been destroyed. 10. No nausea or diarrhea. Though there are several documented deaths, those seem to be the exception rather than the rule, and in most cases attributable to the individual having previous health concerns exacerbated by their encounter with the Chupa. It is hard to disagree with Valet's conclusions that if what was happening was a weapons test, that it could only be called a spectacularly ineffective weapon. If judging by lethality, as Valet astutely points out, a conventional gun would be vastly more lethal. If judging it as some kind of incapacitation ray, it is similarly ineffective. Even victims hit full blast with nothing but air between the subject and the object were usually able to move to varying degrees.
Valet, in examining the details of the reports, came to a disturbing conclusion. He states that while he wishes he could attribute the injuries to accidental exposure or injury, he could not. Instead, he saw clear evidence of whatever intelligent force was behind the chupas intentionally inflicting harm on the victims via the light beams. It's hard to disagree with his conclusions that, whatever it was, it was not a natural phenomenon, and instead points to what Jacques Vallée calls a superior technology at work over Colares. In the same way, we cannot attribute what occurred to a hoax. The amount of time, money, and effort expended by the Brazilian military to investigate the phenomenon, documented contemporaneously in thousands of pages of reports, some of which has been released to the public, along with the accounts of still-living witnesses like Dr. Carvalho, absolutely rules out a hoax or mass hysteria. It is undeniable that, whatever the source, there was something physical in the skies over Colares. We have, like with so many journeys of exploration, returned with copious amounts of information, and yet we know surprisingly little about what we explored. If the Chupas were secret, advanced military technology, we run into the same issue we do with UFO sightings in America and Europe from around this time. This event took place more than 40 years ago, and we still do not have known aircraft that can do what was so frequently observed in Brazil those years ago. If they were not secret terrestrial aircraft attempting to test Brazil's military defenses, or otherwise test the efficacy of the weapons on an unsuspecting populace, then we must consider more sinister motives. They appeared multiple times per week for nearly two years, injured and killed many people by directing a beam at them. Though there can be a debate about whether or not they intended to kill, like so many who came to Brazil from elsewhere, they were at a minimum indifferent to the suffering and death of the people it encountered. So just what, if anything, did the Chupas accomplish? They incited mass panic, that much is indisputable. They possibly collected blood from some individuals. They were shot at multiple times. They killed a few people and hurt a bunch more. They examined a fishing net in a boat. For the time and effort expended, that would seem to be a poor return. However, we cannot look at this event in isolation. It exists as something of a middle point in the timeline of Brazilian ufology. We heard in a previous episode about Antonio Villas-Boas, and aside from the abduction and sweet, sweet boom-boom, it was a relatively benign encounter. He went on to live a normal life, at least as normal as one can after living through something like that. Not everyone who had an encounter with the Chupa during the Calares flap would be so lucky. Some were killed, others injured. And it is during this flap, with multiple deaths and dozens of serious injuries, that the history of Brazilian ufology takes a decidedly dark turn. Stories of deadly encounters with chupas would become a standard part of the UFO experience in Brazil. And perhaps none is more shocking than what occurred to an unnamed man found dead at Guara Paranga Reservoir near Sao Paulo in 1988. The story comes to us from Brazilian UFO researcher Encarnacion 
Zapata Garcia, and it is through his connection with Dr. Goyes Rubens that he obtained photographs and the autopsy report of the man. Before listening further, please note that the next description is quite graphic. Skip ahead if you don't want to hear the details. From the medical examiner, translated from Portuguese. Although the victim has been dead for 48 to 72 hours, there was no sign of being eaten by animals or starting to rot, as would be expected. There was no smell. Bleeding from the wound had been minimal. The lips and flesh from the face had been cut away. The eyes, ears, and tongue had been removed. Neat round holes, one to one and a half inches in diameter, had been made on the shoulders, arms, head, stomach, and anus, and tissue and muscle had been extracted. The holes had not been made through which extensive digestive organs had been extracted. The scrotum, but not the penis, had been removed, and all pubic hair had disappeared. The rectum had been cored out. Despite these devastating mutilations, there was no sign that the victim had been bound or struggled in any way. If you do decide to look into this particular case further, please note that there are photos that purport to be of the man floating around the internet. All I will say is they match the description from the medical examiner. Use your best judgment on whether that's something you really want to look at. The size and shape of the wounds described by Dr. Rubens match exactly the size and shape of the burns observed a decade earlier in Calares. It is difficult to look at this incident and not see parallels both to cattle mutilation in the U.S. and to the injuries treated by Dr. Carvalho. And with this last encounter, our journey of exploration is at an end. We have gone so far, both in distance and time and we have returned with new knowledge. Knowing what you know now, if you saw a UFO, how would you react? Would you approach it? Would you watch it in silent awe? Would you try to take a picture? Would you flee in terror? Would it depend on where in the world you lived? This episode was written and researched by the OSIC's lead researcher, Rory, and was recorded by me. If you'd like to find out more information about the show, including links to show notes, merchandise, our Patreon, and our blog, head on over to our new website, OurStrangeSkies.com. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions, and our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona, and finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. In Grey We Trust.